Turn to Titus chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to read the text, which will begin at verse 3 and go through verse 7. Titus 3, beginning at verse 3 and going through verse 7. These are the words of God. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. Being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The history of the world and the history of your life were forever shaped when the God of heaven made a sovereign choice to extend His mercy to wretched, hell-bound sinners. The choice that God made is so amazing because God was under no obligation to be merciful to anyone. There was no external force that compelled His mercy. No creature has ever done anything to earn His mercy. God extended His mercy toward us because that is who He is. Goodness and mercy and grace naturally flow from the very character of God. And when God looked out and when God considered Adam's fallen race, swaths and myriads of people hopelessly damned in their sin, what we would have seen as a catastrophic failure, God saw as an opportunity to manifest His mercy. The ruin of mankind is a theater for the goodness of God. And boy, did we give him a lot to work with. How did God's sovereign choice to display his mercy shape the history of the world and the history of your life? That's a big statement, right? I'm saying to you this morning that God's eternal choice to be merciful affected everything that has ever happened to you. Everything that's ever come to pass in this world. Yes, even the fall itself was all accustomed to the decree of God to be merciful. Everything that has ever come to pass... Everything that ever will come to pass is because of God's choice to be merciful. Is that true? Yes, it is true. How so? Because God not only has the love and compassion to desire to be merciful, He also has the sovereignty to cause His mercy to be effectual. God didn't choose to try to be merciful. God did not purpose to attempt to be merciful. But he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
He will be merciful. This is the definitive, efficacious, sovereign, steadfast, sure, immutable, unfrustratable, inescapable mercy of God in this text. When God decreed His mercy, He decreed everything else in accordance with it. Our confession even teaches this. London Baptist Confession in chapter 3 in paragraph 6 it says, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so He hath by the eternal and most free purpose of His will. It's eternal. It's free. It was was put into effect before the foundations of the world. It was free. It was not forced. We did not force God's hand and twist His arm and cause Him to be merciful. It was His eternal and free will. He foreordained all the means thereunto. What does that mean? Foreordained all the means thereunto. Thereunto what? Thereunto His decree to be merciful. God said, I will decree to be merciful and I will decree everything else so that I can be merciful. Wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, and are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And brothers and sisters, He's everything in between. The God who decreed in eternity past to be merciful to you, decreed the events of your life so that He can display His mercy in your life and He decreed to keep you in that mercy till the end of the age. God decreed to be merciful and God decreed everything else to ensure the demonstration of His mercy. That's what the confession means when it says He foreordained all the means thereunto. You were born because God wanted to be merciful to you. Before you came to Christ, God preserved your life because you had not yet received His mercy. The Gospel came to you so that you would know the mercy of God. God gave you the gifts of faith and repentance so that you would receive His mercy. You are here today because God is still lavishing you in mercy. And the reason that you did not die in your sleep last night is because God wanted to give you new mercy this morning. So does God's mercy really shape the entirety of the world? All of world history? Your whole life? Is it defined by mercy? Absolutely. You are a debtor to mercy. As we dive into Titus 3, I want you to keep this big picture in mind. Keep this in view. God's mercy is not an abstract concept. God's mercy is the reason that you woke up this morning. God's mercy is the reason that you drew breath this morning. God's mercy is what defines your entire existence as a child of God. May the Lord help us to exalt His mercy and understand how this divine mercy has permeated every fabric of our life. I have three points this morning. First, I want you to see from Titus 3 and verse 3 the reason for His mercy. The reason for His mercy. 
Notice he says at the beginning of verse 3, for we ourselves also were. We ourselves also were. Well, before we go any further, we need to give a definition for this grand theme that we're considering. What is the mercy of God? How do we define it biblically, theologically? What is the mercy of God? I'm going to say this twice for the note takers. The mercy of God is the grace of God manifesting itself by not giving you what you deserve. The mercy of God is the grace of God manifesting itself by not giving you what you deserve. Some people will say the grace of God is God giving you what you don't deserve and the mercy of God is God keeping you from what you do deserve. There's truth to that, but really... You can't separate grace and mercy. They're, they're, they're twin brothers. Wherever one is, the other is sure to come. I think it's more accurate to see God's grace is this overarching umbrella, His disposition towards His people, and His grace manifests itself through mercy and patience, forbearance and love and kindness, security, so on and so forth. So the, so the mercy of God is God's grace manifesting itself in not giving you what you deserve. So to understand mercy, we have to understand what we deserve apart from mercy. And to understand what we deserve apart from mercy, we have to understand what we were before we came to experience the mercy of God. So Paul begins in verse 3, For we ourselves, so he's not talking about those really awful sinners out there that we think we're better than. No, he's talking about us. You, for you were, you can read it that way, you were, I was. We ourselves also were, he begins an important three-letter word, for. Okay, so we see this, for we ourselves. So we know he's logically saying something that preceded what he just said. Well, what did he just say? In verses 1 and 2, he just said that Christians are to be respectable and obedient citizens. They're to be ready to do good works. Christians are not to speak evil of others. Christians are not to be contentious, aggressive, brawlers. Rather, Christians are to be meek towards all men. That's what he says in verse 1 and 2. It's a, an imperative command. Why, Paul? Why are we supposed to be that way? Because before we were the recipients of the mercy of God, we ourselves also were. If you think that God's mercy makes you better than... You don't understand God's mercy. God's mercy has nothing to do with what you bring to the table, but it's everything to do with what God has done for you. Verse 3 is a description of what we were before we experienced the mercy of God. More strikingly, understand this, verse 3 is what you would still be today had you not experienced the mercy of God. It's tempting to skip over or make light of a description of yourself like the one given in verse 3. We, we read something like that in the Bible and we understand that God did not care about making us feel good. Really, we, we find lists like this and descriptions like this all throughout the Scripture. It's really a, an attestation to the divine inspiration of Scripture because no man writing of his own authority and power would ever say some of the things that the Bible says about himself. Because we think much too highly of ourselves. 
We might admit that there are some people that live like there's three, but not us. We're different. We weren't that bad. We say to God, and God says, no, you were also like this. So we must look at verse 3. We must not make light of it because you won't see the beauty of mercy until you see the malignity of sin. And if you think lightly of your sin, you will think lightly of your Savior. Good people don't need mercy. But the people described in verse 3, they need mercy. We need mercy. So what were we before the mercy of God? We ourselves also were sometimes, meaning in a previous time before we encountered the mercy of God, Foolish, against knowledge, rejecting the reality of God, wanting nothing to do with Him, giving no thought to Him. That the creature would have the audacity to live with no thought to his Creator is sin enough for eternal damnation. Denying the proper place of God in your life, rejecting the glory of God and instead focusing upon the filth of this world, living in autonomy. No God for me. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to put me first. Our culture really idolizes some of those things. Motivational speakers will go as far as to tell you that's what you need to do. Love yourself before you can love anyone else. But Romans one twenty one says, because that, when they knew God, when they saw Him reveal Himself in nature, which everyone does, that's why the man in the furthest jungle that has never read a Bible and has never had a missionary come and give him the gospel, that is why he is condemned before God because he sees the light of nature and he rejects it. When they knew God, they glorified him, not as God. Well, if you don't recognize God and glorify him, guess what? You're not going to be thankful. So neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart. Foolishness is not just talking about Well, you didn't know enough. The problem with mankind is not ignorance. It's not ignorance. If it was, salvation would be education. We could just go into all the world and teach people, and that would be good enough. We're to go into all the world and share Christ with people because their foolish hearts are darkened because that which they do see of God, they reject. Foolish. Foolishness leads to disobedience. You were disobedient. Disobedient to what? God. To His Word, to His law, to His precepts, to His principles. Of course you were disobedient. You hated God's law. You hated God's law. Paul said of himself, had not the law said, thou shalt not covet, I would not have realized how much of a sinner I was. I hated that law. Disobedient. Foolish, so foolishness and disobedience come together to give the ugly child of what? Deception. You're deceived. 
Your sin and rebellion corrupted your mind so that you couldn't begin to comprehend the truth. The natural man builds his lives upon a bed of lies and deception. Deceived about who made him. Deceived about why he was made. Deceived about his purpose in the world. Deceived about the meaning of life itself. Deceived into thinking that sin is the source of joy and fulfillment. And why, do, why do people sin? Because they want to. Because they're deceived into thinking that, that sin will bring them a joy, a supreme joy that can only be found in Christ. Our message to the world is not come and be a Christian and be miserable for the rest of your life and never have fun again and be stoic and be the, come be the frozen chosen with us. Our message is, you don't know true joy. You don't know true happiness. You don't know true contentment until you know Christ. You're deceived into thinking that sin has a pleasure to offer you, but it will bring you nothing but pain and misery. Your, your eyes are blind. You're deceived, and so because you're deceived, you serve diverse lusts. And pleasures, the Bible says in verse 3 again. Serving diverse lusts. Serving what divers? Diverse. Many different kinds of lusts and pleasures. Because you don't have true joy springing from a heart that delights in God, you are enslaved to serve all sorts of impulsive, vile, and carnal lusts. You live like an animal guided by pleasure and instinct. That's what the Bible says about the natural man. Why, why does the natural man make his decisions? Not for the glory of God, but to satisfy his own lusts and pleasures. Have you ever wondered how a drunk can literally sicken himself with alcohol to the point that he passes out in his own vomit? And then he comes to in the morning and he does it all over again. enslaved to these lusts and pleasures, serving them, serving them. The depraved heart sees the glory of God as He reveals Himself in nature and He proceeds to spit in God's face and He says, I will reject the supreme joy found in you alone and I will go seek my joy in a bottle. I will go seek my joy in sex, in sports, in money, in whatever else I can find to fill that void, that void in my life. Living in malice and envy. When you serve your own lusts and pleasures, you, you cannot help but live in malice and envy. Because they never find the joy that they long for, they live in malice and envy. A life of sin is a life devoid of contentment, devoid of satisfaction, devoid of rest, devoid of peace. They live in malice and envy. It's not that just, they just have an occasional thought, an occasional envious thought. No, their life is guided by their envies. Alcohol didn't satisfy, so let's move on to marijuana. Marijuana doesn't satisfy me, so let's move on to hard drugs. 
$50,000 a year is not enough, so let me go make a hundred. One car isn't enough, let me buy three. I'm not happy with one house, uh, let me go buy another one on the lake with my boat. And then when I buy that house on the lake with my boat, I'm going to sit there on the deck and I'm going to watch the beautiful sunset as it comes down upon the waters. And I'm still not going to be happy. Because my problem is not a lack of material possessions. My problem is a lack of God in my heart. So you can assume wealth. You can hide it. You can hide it. There was a an old country song. The title of it was What Am I Going to Do With The Rest Of My Life? And, and the tagline, you know, he, the, the singer said, you know, I've got things I can do tonight. I, I've got, I can go to a party and I can, I can drink and I can, I can pretend that everything's okay. But what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And what a sad song that is, right? That's the truth. That, that is the song of the lost man. You, you, you buy that boat. You, you, you buy that bottle of alcohol. You, you buy that drug. You, you chase after sexual partners and you, you see how long that will last you. But what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I'll tell you what you'll do with the rest of your life. You will, you will be hateful and you will be hating one another. Verse 3. Where does it all end? Foolishness leads to disobedience and deception, which genders a life of slavery to carnal lusts, which turns into living in malice and envy, because sin cannot provide that which it promises. Cannot. All this will boil down to a heart filled with hate and a life consumed hatred. Why do we need God's mercy? Because hearts like this don't go to heaven. Because hearts like this don't deserve to go to heaven. Hearts like this don't know God. So thank God mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. Verse 3 is the reason for mercy. Now we look at verse 4 and we see the reality of His mercy. Reality of His mercy. For we ourselves also were, verse 4, but after that. (laughs) This is one of those precious but God moments in the Bible. One of those moments where God, for no other reason besides His love and His tender compassion, condescends to people like the people in verse 3, and He interjects His mercy in their lives. There's no other explanation but God. Verse 3 is all of us. Verse 3 is because of us. But from verse 4 on, it's all of God. Verse 3 describes our natural condition apart from the mercy of God, but now in verse 4, God begins to describe what happens in a verse 3 heart when His mercy becomes a reality. But after that, the kindness of and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Mercy is accompanied by kindness. Mercy is propelled by love. 
do you not see how unlike us God is? When we meet someone with a cold and sour heart, when we meet someone like someone in verse 3, envious and living in malice and hateful and full of hate, how do we respond? Well, I hate you too. That's, that's how we respond. We don't want to be around people like that. We certainly don't go looking for them. But God seeks out people just like that. And he doesn't have to look long to find them. And when he finds them, he says, Ah, an object for me to be kind to. And a vessel for me to pour out my love into. And a sinner to cover in mercy. The kindness of God is his compassionate disposition. If you come to him in faith... Listen to me. If you come to Him in faith, I promise you, He will not be cruel to you. If you come to Him and you confess your sins, He will not say, You did what? How could you? I'm disgusted with you. Get away from me. No, He will be kind to you. He will not reject you will not cast you out. He will embrace you in His kindness. The kindness of God and verse 4, the love of God toward man. The love of God here is His specific love for mankind. If I told you the Greek, you could tell me the English. The Greek word is philanthropia. Philanthropia. It's a compound word combining Philos, meaning love, and anthropos, meaning man. God's love for man. That's where we get our English word philanthropy. When you look at verse 4, you must, you must see this. Just as clearly as God wants you to know what a wretched sinner you were in verse 3. He wants you to know that. So also does He want you to know how much He loves you in verse 4. God shows us the depths of our sins so that we might look up and see His kindness and see His love. And it is truly in the depths of our sin that His love becomes so amazing to us. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we received mercy, He purposed to die for us. The most profound doctrine in all of Scripture may very well be, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The love of God is not a byword in this passage. It's the focal point of this passage. The only reason why he has to include this list in verse 3 is because what does the love of God mean unless you realize the objects upon which it is bestowed? 
there are some Calvinists who have a really bad habit of hammering the doctrine of total depravity. I mean, we hammer it. You filthy, vile, stinking wretch. We come to verse 3, we get excited about it. But then we glance past the love of God in verse 4, because that doesn't fit our cold, rigid, joyless system. Now, in this day of self-righteousness, we need to recover the doctrine of total depravity. I affirm the doctrine of total depravity. But we can't rightly understand the love of God without understanding the doctrine of total depravity. But understand this, the doctrine of total depravity is not what produces our joy. Polishing the tea on the tulip is not what makes us shout and scream and produces our joy. Hearing how vile and wretched and debased I was without God is not what causes me to well up inside with a passionate heart of thankfulness. The cause of my supreme joy is knowing that despite my total depravity, the compassionate and merciful and gracious God of heaven was pleased to set His love upon me. I can understand something of my depravity. You you don't have to convince me that I'm a sinner. I'm going to preach verse 3 because... We exposit the Bible around here, but I don't think I have to convince any of you that everything in verse 3 is true of you. But what amazes me, brothers and sisters, is how God could ever love me in spite of my sins. That is the mystery. Why does He place His mercy upon us? Because He loves us. And why does He love us? He loves us because He loves us. So what can we do other than saying, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Do not let the prosperity gospel rob you of the love of God. Do not let the Joel Osteens of this world that that get up on TV and just want to preach, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is... A false doctrine preached that way. Because apart from Christ, we have no assurance of the love of God. Apart from understanding our sin and understanding the gifts of repentance and faith, we we can't fathom the love of God. But don't let those who want to tickle ears with the love of God steal the doctrine of God's love from you. It is true. It is in the Bible. He loved the world. Jesus Christ did not die for anyone He didn't love. You need to fixate your mind upon the love of God. Because if you, if you fixate your mind upon verse 3 and forget about the love and mercy of God, you will become a disgruntled, depressed Christian. This is the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man. But notice that it appeared. It appeared. This, this word appeared is not... It's not insignificant. This is an important word. Because this word reveals to us the reality of God's mercy. It appeared. Think about this for a minute. How can kindness and love appear? How can you see kindness and love? And if I gave you a piece of paper and some crayons and asked you to draw kindness and love, what would you draw? can't see kindness and love, yet the Bible says that they appeared. 
How? How do, how do kindness and love appear, according to verse 4? Two ways. Number one, the preeminent appearance of kindness and love came in the form of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of the Son of God was the appearance of kindness and love into the world. Jesus is the kindness of God embodied. Jesus is the love of God personified. He is the flesh and bones of God's kindness and love. That's what He is. He's God's kindness and love. For God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. Jesus was a product of God's kindness and love. It was God's love gift to the world. Kindness and love can appear because they are not mere ideas. They are not mere abstract concepts. They are not emotional feelings. Kindness and love are a person and His name is Jesus Christ. He is kindness and love. Amen? Somebody. Secondly, the kindness and love of God appear in us, appear in us as Jesus works through our hearts and manifests himself in his people. Jesus is the appearance of kindness and love, but newsflash, Jesus has not physically walked the earth in 2,000 years. So are the kindness and love still appearing in the world? Can they still be seen in the world? Verse 3 tells us what we are naturally. And so anytime we are no longer described by verse 3, that is the kindness and love of God appearing in our life. Let me explain. Verse 3 says, naturally we are foolish. So when we seek the wisdom of God, that's God's kindness and love appearing in our heart. Verse 3 says that we are deceived. When we come to believe the truth, that's God's kindness and love appearing in our heart through Christ. Verse 3 says, naturally we serve diverse lusts and pleasures. When we now serve God, that's His kindness and love appearing in our heart. The world can see it. The world can see Christ in us as He works Himself out of us. Verse 3 says, naturally we are full of hate. We hate one another. We're hateful. When we love one another, the world sees Christ in us. The world shall know you're my disciples because you believe in total depravity. No, that's not what it says. The world will know that you're my disciples because you love each other and they'll know that you're my disciples because you can't love each other apart from me working that love in you. A pastor can teach a church doctrine. A pastor can preach the word and teach the truth of the Bible. A pastor can disciple his congregation in the distinctives of Baptist theology or Presbyterian theology, whatever church it happens to be. But you know what a pastor can't do? He cannot teach his church to love one another. Christ does that. The Spirit does that. And this transforming work of grace is the work of God alone. That is what He has done for us. It's what He is doing for us. Because He's making His kindness and love appear in our lives. That should be your prayer. 
Lord, make your kindness and love appear in my heart so that unbelievers who are still described in the terms of verse 3 so that they could see me, they could see how I live, they could see my heart, they could see my affections, and they would see your kindness and your love in me. How does this work take place? How, how do we become... Did we sign up to receive God's kindness and love and we were put on some mailing list and you know, shipping takes a while to get from heaven to earth so we waited around for it and worked for it and begged for it and then it finally got to us and now we have it? Verse 5 tells us how we became the recipients of God's kindness and love. Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Paul's already stated this in the positive, but in case anyone's confused, he states it again in the negative. God did not do this work in your heart because you earned it. If mercy could be earned, it would cease to be mercy. Why does God have to tell us this? Well, because... Unless you're super sanctified, that's sarcastic, by the way. Unless you're super sanctified, here's how your brain is hardwired. Your brain is hardwired to think that when something good happens to you, you automatically assume that you must have done something to earn it, deserve it, or cause it. Makes sense. In an earthly plane, you get a promotion at work, probably because you've been doing good. Numbers have been looking good. Been producing. Faithful employee. Here's a promotion. That's how you're wired to think. Even if salvation is 99% the work of God, which... I believe you can be a Christian and not see salvation as the work of God, but there's some who think, you know, it's the work of God, but then there's that, that part that we bring to the table. There's that part that we add to it. God does the 99%, and then there's that 1% that I'm going to boast about. Yeah, God offered salvation, but I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I fear for people that have testimonies that sound I, 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 I. It's not by works of righteousness what you have done. Jonathan Edwards was right when he said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What do you do for your salvation? Verse 3, that's what you do. You provide the sinner for God to save all by himself. Congratulations. Notice that the works that are specifically excluded in verse 5 are not evil works. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, not by works you did in legalism. Not by works you did in paganism. No, he says, not by works you did in righteousness. Some are of the opinion that God saves people on the basis of some good that he foresees in them. Perhaps God looked down the corridors of time and God decided to help those who help themselves. Did God consider your righteous works in eternity past? I believe He did. I believe He did look down to see what you could offer, to see the best effort that you could 
put forth uh, to see what good you could do on your own. And then after observing all of that, He sent His Son to die to save you from it. Because Isaiah says that all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags before Him. So He sees them, but they're absolutely irrelevant when it comes to the dispensation of His mercy. He didn't save you according to anything you did or according to anything you could do or according to anything you could offer Him, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Verse 5. That's grace. That is mercy. Your purest motives were irrelevant when God saved you. Because salvation is what He has done for you. And as long as you come to the cross clinging on to your own works and clinging on to your endeavors, you'll never be able to grasp Jesus. Because you can only grasp Jesus with empty hands. Empty hands. Reality of His mercy. Saving us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The mercy of God saves us in spite of our sins and from our sins. His love is an efficacious love. You you cannot receive the kindness, love, and mercy of God and not be changed. You, You don't clean yourself up in order to be washed, do you? Do any of you take a preliminary shower before you take a real shower? There might be some OCD people out there that do. I don't know. (laughs) Don't clean yourself up to be washed. He does it. He does it. Because all of those whom God loves He sends the Son to redeem and He sends the Spirit to regenerate because He loves you too much to leave you in verse 3. He won't leave you there, brothers and sisters. He won't. He he might find you disobedient and deceived, serving diverse lusts, serving your pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating one another, being full of hate. He might find you there, but He loves you so much He won't leave you there. He'll save you. He'll regenerate you. He'll take you to Himself. Because of regeneration, Paul can now say, we were that, we were that, but we aren't that anymore. Washing of the Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's interesting that in verse 4, God is called our Savior. And then in verse 6, Jesus is called our Savior, and God saves us by pouring out the Spirit abundantly through Christ. The mercy of God did not come to you by happenstance. The mercy of God was purposed by God in the blessedness of His three persons in eternity past when Father, Son, and Holy Ghost determined to be merciful to you before the world ever began. Turn, turn back just a page or two to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Notice 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. 
who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When did God decide to be merciful to you? Before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you wouldn't know the mercy of God. Who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God is the originator of our mercy, of His mercy to us. The gospel is the vehicle through which He communicates that mercy. Christ is the person, the object of that mercy, and the Spirit is the efficator of that mercy. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you are a recipient of Trinitarian mercy. Your regeneration and renewal does not happen because you made a decision, or because you walked an aisle, or because you prayed a prayer, or because you joined a church, or because you got baptized, or because you gave some money somewhere. Your regeneration occurred because you are united to the Godhead through Jesus Christ. Regeneration is a person. This washing of regeneration, by the way, let me just say this, because we are in West Tennessee, and this is a prominent doctrine around our part of the country. This washing of regeneration is not water baptism. Titus 3 uses the same language that Jesus uses in John 3. Here's how you can remember it. John 3, John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. Except you be born of water and the Spirit. The washing of regeneration. So when Jesus is referencing Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, when He says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. But the cleansing He's talking about is not physical cleansing. You shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. Baptism doesn't cleanse you from idolatry. It gets you wet. It doesn't cleanse you from idolatry. And then he goes on to say, as if there's still any confusion, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what he's talking about. How many are in hell today because they believe they were saved, regenerated through their baptism? And they were never united to Christ. Baptism unites us outwardly, yes. Does baptism identify us with the church? Yes. Is baptism a means of God's grace whereby He solidifies our faith in Him? Yes. Does baptism cleanse you from your sins? My heart breaks anytime we're out doing public ministry, door to door, whatever the case may be, and we're talking with someone and, and they say, Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian too. I believe, in, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. Oh, tell me about how the Lord saved you. Well, when I was nine, I was baptized and I joined a church. And that's how the Lord saved me. If you were regenerated through baptism, then your regeneration would not, you could not say of it, not by works of righteousness which we have done. And we want to love those who have fallen into that error, but we want to address it. It's so prevalent. God saves you 
and He regenerates you, and He pours out the Spirit on you abundantly in Christ that you might know the reality of His kindness and His love and His mercy. So I ask you, has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Or are you trusting in something that you have done? Are you trusting in the sincerity in which you prayed a prayer? Are you trusting in some emotional feeling you had one time? Are you trusting in a baptism? Or can you say, yes, this has happened to me, not because of anything I have done, but because God has made His love and His kindness to appear in my heart. Quit looking to things that you have done. You you will put yourself in bondage, by the way, brothers and sisters. Many Christians struggle with assurance of their salvation. True believers struggle with the assurance of their salvation because they have not fully grasped that it's not up to you. You're, you're trusting, well, did I, really, did I really pray the prayer correctly? Uh, did, did I really mean it? When that, when that preacher was counseling with me and he was asking me, do I know I'm a sinner? Was I, did I give the right answers? You don't look to what you've done. You look to what God has done. Look to the cross. Did Jesus die for you? Do you now love Him? Emotions come and emotions go. But the love of God is steadfast, eternal, and immutable. And whenever you don't feel it, you can know through faith that you are still receiving it. It's the reality of His mercy. And thirdly, I want you to see in verse 7 the result of His mercy. The result of His mercy. We know what people look like that don't have the mercy of God. We see them in verse 3, but what about those that receive the mercy of God? Verse 7. Why? To what great end did God pour out His mercy upon you? That being justified by His grace. Justification is God's declaring us righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. I don't think Paul includes this By accident. He wants you to understand the connection between regeneration and justification. God borns you again. God gives you new life because your old life wasn't good enough. That's an understatement. Verse 3. That's your old life. That would not get you to God. That would not get you to experience kindness and love. So that life, God didn't come to improve you. He came to kill you and birth you again. Regenerate you. Those who are regenerated are justified. This new life, Paul says, hey, I don't live this life in the flesh. I live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And this new life God sees through the lens of Jesus Christ. God sees us in Him as perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and spotlessly splendid, sinless. In the moment of your justification, which is something God does, declaring you righteous, not a work you perform, in the moment of your justification, listen, you are as righteous as you ever will be, and you are as righteous as you will ever need to be. We reject the Catholic idea of infused righteousness, that is, the, the view that when God saves you, He gives you the grace to then perform the works to earn your salvation. And if you do a really good job of the grace He's given you, you go to heaven. If you do an okay job, you go to purgatory. If you do a really bad job, you lose your salvation altogether and go to hell. Now, when God justifies you, it's something He does, and He 
in that moment gives you all of the righteousness that you need to live before him. Why does he do that? Why, why does he give us this assurance? Why does he want you to know how secure you are in him? Why does he want you to know how much he loves you and not be doubting whether or not he is for you? So that we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our sin deserved eternal damnation. And apart from these promises, even as Christians, there are days when we wonder, am I really? I mean, after that backsliding, am I really in the faith? God says, I don't want you to live in fear and bondage as my child. I want you to live with the hope of eternal life. And eternal life is not just something you receive in heaven, by the way. Eternal life is something you have right now. I'm talking to eternal people today. That whosoever believeth in him should one day get eternal life. No, should have everlasting life. You have it if you're in Christ. We live in a hopeless world, don't we? I don't have to tell you that things are grim. It's not hard to get discouraged. It's not. But the Bible doesn't say that God saves us to give us the possibility of eternal life or the dream of eternal life or of even how some think about it, the dreadfulness of eternal life, you know. But He died to save us, to pour out His mercy upon us, to love us, to regenerate us, to renew us, to sanctify us, to justify us so that we could have the hope of eternal life. It's a hope. Where's your hope? Do you have hope this morning? And hope in the biblical sense is not just something we really want to happen. That's how we use the word hope. I hope so. When we say, well, I hope so, we mean I'd like it to happen, but I don't really know if it will. I hope my plane doesn't crash on the way to San Antonio next week. Really hope so. But hope in the biblical sense. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Do you have faith in something that's unsure, unsteady? Do you have faith in things that are definite? Therefore, faith in hope means that hope is something that is definite. And it's definite because God decreed it to happen. So when he says we have hope of eternal life, it's not saying that that we can have a pretty good feeling that we might have eternal life. He gives us hope of eternal life because we do have it. Because it's a reality in our life. Hope is something that God has ordained. He has ordained that we should have eternal life in Christ. And that gives us hope. We should be the happiest, most joyful people on the face of the earth. We were, we were lost in sin. We were dead to God. We were headed for hell and looking forward to getting there. And God, but God, because of unfathomable, ineffable, undeserved mercy, interjected His grace in our life, saved us, gave us a new hope of eternal life with Him. He, he didn't say, I'm going to save you from your sins and then I'm going to expect you to live with remorse for the rest of your life because now you know what a sinner you are. And he says, I'm going to save you and I'm going to give you hope. Real hope. Like the kind of hope that you were trying to find when you were chasing after your sins and you never found it. 
Here it is in Christ. Why does the kindness, love, and mercy of God cause us to have hope? Because the kindness, love, and mercy of God causes God to act. Causes God to act. It causes Him to decree all things and ordain all things so that His mercy might be manifested. And it was the love, kindness, and mercy of God revealed in His grace that compelled our Lord Jesus Christ to leave the splendors of heaven. To come to this earth. To veil himself in human flesh. To live under the curse that he came to remove. He didn't go to the cross out of a sense of duty, by the way. <laughs> he didn't say, uh, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I guess I have to. He took up his cross. Because he loved you. Loved you. And he carried it to Golgotha's hill. So that he could be merciful to you. God's mercy is God's grace manifested in not giving you what you deserve. Well then what happens to what you deserved? I mean, you deserved death and hell. You didn't get death and hell. What happened to death and hell? Christ took it on your behalf, in your place. The death of Christ is what allows God to be merciful to you because the mercy of God never comes at the expense of God's justice. Paul says in Romans, how can God then be the just and the justifier? He has to pour out hell and wrath and damnation. He has to be just. He promised it. The wages of sin is death. That's a promise. And every sin will meet death and hell and damnation. Yet you don't receive that because Christ received it for you so that God could be merciful. Because we won't ever scratch the surface of, in this life. We'll think about these things, we'll preach about these things, pray about these things, only begin to really comprehend them. He gives us the hope of eternal life so that throughout the ceaseless ages we might eternally dwell in the presence of our merciful God who loves us. As we come to the Lord's table, may we celebrate. Celebrate. Jesus says, I am not going to drink this cup again with you until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You won't be there unless you have the hope of eternal life. So as we partake the bread and the wine, as we consider what our Lord did so that God could be merciful to us, we want to think about that coming day when our hope of eternal life becomes our reality of eternal life. May God exalt Himself in us, in His kindness, in His love, in His mercy. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your mercy this morning. This mercy that was manifested in Christ Jesus our Lord. This mercy that has saved us from the bondage of sin and death. This mercy that has redeemed us. Father, make the kindness and love of God appear in our lives, appear in our hearts. May we preach Christ 
chiefly in what we say, but also in the way that we live. Oh God, may you be pleased. May you be pleased in what we do and how we worship. That your glory may be known throughout the earth. Oh God, help us. Bless us. Help us to celebrate your supper. To enjoy the fellowship of one another. We are pilgrims upon this earth. We are citizens of heaven. But we have the hope of eternal life. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hasten the day that our Lord returns. Hasten the day when we look upon Him face to face. But until then, Lord, give us joy. Encourage us. Give us peace and contentment in the things that our sin never provided. Let us find them in Christ. Rest in Him. Glorify You today, O God. Magnify and exalt You in Your mercy to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.